Hi folks, Tony Beadle here. Thanks for joining us for the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast. In today's podcast, Chante Westmoreland and I talked to Professor John Yu about the future of warfare. Professor Yu is currently the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. He was appointed as a Deputy Assistant U.S. Attorney General during the Bush administration. Professor Yu currently teaches several classes at Berkeley Law and has recently co-authored a new book, Striking Power, How Cyber, Robots, and Space Weapons Change the Rules for War. We hope you enjoy our talk. Professor Yu, could you uh, tell us about your journey to Berkeley Law? We uh, understood you came here for a Grateful Dead concert and ended up losing your ride home. <laughs> I, 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 th- I heard this was the best place to get marijuana at the lowest prices <laughs> <laughs> back in the early 90s. So actually, I've uh, spent a lot of time bouncing back and forth between uh, Berkeley and Washington, D.C. So I uh, came here to teach in 93. So I guess that makes me one of the longest serving faculty members around now. And then I went off uh, to uh, work. Uh, I clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas in the Supreme Court, and I served as uh, general counsel uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee while I was on the faculty. Then I came back. Uh, and taught for several years, uh, got tenure, and then I went back and worked for the Bush administration, and then came back again. And so I think I've been in Washington, the time I've taught, I've been almost here 25 years, and I've probably spent about six of those years in Washington. Uh, So yeah, I've been back and forth a lot, but I I love it here, and it's a, you know, I can't imagine being a professor anywhere else now, even I visited a lot of schools, this is such a great place, so I feel lucky to be here. And we'll see if I feel lucky that the students know how to do podcasts now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what's your inspiration for this new book? Have you been peer pressured by your fellow tech professor? It's and... true. I don't think anybody's interested in any subject except technology now. So I figured I ought to write about tech. But actually, in seriousness. <laughs> he what? says to the tech law podcast. Yeah, the tech people. It's like, it's all your fault. So, uh, well, you know, one thing, it is true that here at uh Berkeley and the law school, tech is everywhere. You know, it's not only, not only I think our, our school is the best tech program and has had it ever since uh, technology appeared on the field in the 90s, but uh, technology is changing human affairs. And so it's, uh, naturally it's, it's seeping into every area of law and even uh, the areas that I work in, constitutional law and international law. So the book itself came about because my previous book, which you should also buy, which is called, I can't even remember the name of it. Now let's have a look. Hurting his shelf <laughs> Yeah, Point of Attack. Actually, I didn't even notice the color, the covers are almost identical. Oh, yeah. They look very really similar. <laughs> so Point of Attack was about uh, what we call use ad bellum, which is the legality of starting a war. And so the next thing you would usually write about is what's called use in bello, which is the rules on how you fight the war. And technology is changing warfare so quickly, I thought, Instead of just writing a general book about, uh, you know, the rules of warfare, I would write it with specific uh, focus on technology. And so what are these technologies that are changing the rules of war exactly? Yeah. So it's interesting. The uh, one that everyone has seen and would know about is drone, are drones, aerial drones, you know, UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles. But those are just the, the leading edge of what we're going to see in terms of uh, robotics, cyber, and space. So if you think about a drone as it's conventionally seen as flying over Afghanistan and Iraq and shooting missiles at 
and uh, members of the enemy. It's really just a jet fighter or a jet bomber without a human pilot. But it looks this similar. It has the same function. It flies around and shoots a missile. Uh, the, one of the technologies uh, I argue about is that robotics is gonna are gonna look completely different uh, than that in the future. So you'll have in the future, uh, you're not gonna have bigger, more expensive drones flying around. You're gonna have swarms of tiny little inexpensive drones. So the the uh, robotic fighter jet of the future is gonna look more like the Amazon delivery drone than it's gonna look like you know a B twenty nine bomber. Uh, cyber also is a whole different area. You know, we don't even see the weapon that has not much parallel to the past. So uh, an example would be the Stuxnet virus, where allegedly the Israeli and U.S. Uh, security services built a, 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 a cyber virus designed specifically to disable a certain machine in the Iranian nuclear program and set the Iranian nuclear program back three to four years. And then the last thing uh, we talk about is space. Uh, space is an area that uh, is undergoing rapid change too. Um, the cost of putting up a satellite, for example, uh, in the last decade has dropped by almost 90%. Uh, so again, similar to OCS drones, instead of gigantic satellites like, uh, I don't know, the Battlestar Galactica or something, you're going to see thousands of little satellites actually going up. Uh, going up into orbit it's going to be very crowded up there and so space space already is uh, the backbone of a lot of the military in terms of information and surveillance uh, detection and so we argue it's also going to become a more crowded uh, again more innovative area for uh, the military and so, and we haven't really thought about and I'd say we haven't really thought about the rules very hard for any of these robot advanced robotics cyber or space and have you already seen, have the different administrations here in the United States already been using these types of weapons or technologies? Yes, yes. so the, the, a lot of the weapons, uh, some of them have been used with like drones. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, some, uh, several of them are uh, under development. Um, uh, we have used uh, cyber weapons. They've been used heavily against us. Mm -hmm. um, space is an area where there's a lot more development probably take place most in the area of missile defense so there's a lot of research going on there um, I don't know I would say uh, there some of the uh, some of the policy differences are the result of administrations some of it also is just the result of the end of the Cold War so okay. when the Cold War ended for example you saw a dialing back of a lot of research into space mm -hmm. for example mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, uh, the Soviet Union and the United States reduced their uh, nuclear arsenals. And so there was seen as less of a need to build a comprehensive missile defense system, which would heavily rely on space. Um, if you think about uh, missile defense, uh, what we ended up building was a small missile defense system aimed at uh, uh, an attack by North Korea or in Iran. So against a country that would only launch one or two missiles. Mm -hmm. And uh, we designed it to shoot at the missile when it was about to come down out of space to land on the U.S., which is the hardest time to shoot a missile down. It's like really trying to shoot a bullet with another bullet. And so we built a ground-based missile defense. Mm -hmm. The best time actually to shoot a missile, you know, you watch a movie of a, of a rocket taking off. When they first launch, they're really slow, clumsy. They put out a lot of heat. Uh, in flames, and they're very vulnerable. The mm -hmm. best time to shoot a missile down is when it's taking off. Mm -hmm. 
to do that successfully, you'd want to have a system based in space because you could put this satellite right. You, you know, I would, I would do is I would put a satellite over North Korea all the time, <laughs> would just shoot down every <laughs> missile that came out, right? But because of the end of the Cold War, we slowed down our research okay. on those. Now, cyber, I think, is harder. I think the Obama administration, I think what they were hope. So we, I think we have been on the receiving end for about three or four years of a lot of cyber attacks. Mm -hmm. And you, you can see in the press that uh, the Obama administration had a lot of options to retaliate, and they chose not to. They were hoping, I think, to build uh, an understanding with China and Russia to not use these kinds of weapons against each other, to show uh, restraint. Uh, much as the rule, much as what happened with nuclear weapons, if mm -hmm. you think about it, nuclear weapons after World War II, there's never, never been another one used. There's no treaty which bans the use of nuclear weapons, but the uh, major powers all restrained each other through deterrence. Mm -hmm. So I think the Obama administration was hoping that would happen. Um, and so I think the United States uh, voluntarily held back from retaliating. But instead, I think what happens is the Chinese and the Russians really just took advantage of it. That's and right. now we know, you know, now we know they. We're going to have to use cyber to retaliate against them to get them to stop mm -hmm. these sort of almost weekly, you know, hacks that we read about. Right. The Trump administration has strongly criticized our expenditures in, or at least Trump himself during the campaign cycle, strongly criticized our military expenditures yeah. in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he also has talked about expanding our military and reinvesting in our military. You described that as a looming impasse what yeah. solutions does technology have for that yeah i think like in a lot of areas trump is contradicting himself with things he says i don't you know don't make coherent sense to me so sometimes he says we have been wasting uh our resources being not just in iraq and afghanistan but in nato you know east asia mm -hmm. japan korea so he, he so part of why he was elected i think is he reflects a uh, fatigue with the, the american people about all these commitments then on the other hand as you say he also says we need to rebuild the military which is an odd thing to say if you want to pull it back from mm -hmm. the world yeah. if but if that if he believes those two things then the pitch uh, I try to make in this book is, well, then technology is the only way to reconcile, right? Just like in the you know, private sector, uh, if you want to be more productive but use less resources, then technology is the thing that, you know, factors in. And so you could see uh, perhaps if you relied more on robotics, cyber, uh, and space weapons to uh, exert pressure on other countries, uh, that might reduce the need to put more men and women in harm's way. Uh, I should note that, you know, the, the, so this attitude towards technology, people don't really think of it that way, but we're really just talking about technology in the way people do about in the economy or mm -hmm. society. You think about, you know, a robot in a factory, it makes Labor each factor, yeah, it makes each, each factory worker more productive, more effective. And so maybe that'll be uh, the, and I, I, let me also say that would reduce the trend of weapons and technology, which have generally become more destructive less discriminating between civilians and soldiers. So you think about a nuclear weapon is the most, uh, you know, is the sort of best example, the pinnacle of 20th century technology. It kills millions of people with one bomb and it kills everybody, civilians, soldiers. There's no distinction between targets. The one thing that the new technologies do, just like they're doing in the civilian economy, is it allows you to have so much greater precision. So actually... Uh, you see the use of drones and cyber. 
they kill less people, destroy less things. This is a this is a real revolution in the way technology affects war. War technology has always allowed war to be worse <laughs> in a way, right. kill more people. Yeah. Now if you, you're just starting to see the signs of it in Iraq and Afghanistan. People die. That's what happens in war. But a lot less people are dying. A lot less things are being destroyed by the West, by Western forces. Um, insurgencies are harder. You could say, well, insurgencies are harder to fight with technology. That's true. But at least in wars between uh, you know, nation states, I think you're going to see even less casualties and destruction because of these weapons. So with, it sounds like technology allows countries to be more precise in avoiding civilians, uh, civ civilian casualties at least. What about like a, a widespread cyber attack, for example? How would that yeah. affect Yes. individual civilians use of either their own yeah. technology or the yeah. internet yeah, different a good, networks. yeah that's a good question so technology also makes us vulnerable because we rely on it so much and many people say uh, the united states is the most vulnerable mm -hmm. because our you know we have the one of the you know the richest country most reliant on the internet for communications and uh, control on the one hand if you think about it, it makes uh, the weapons can be more precise if the nations want to make them precise. Mm -hmm. So suppose, you know, suppose the United States wanted to launch a cyber attack on another country. Uh, the, you could make the attack devastating, right? You could shut down all electricity in the country for weeks, which would be worse than bombing a country in many ways. Or, right, so you could still do that. But I, I guess what I'd say is that the Technology, what it allows you to do, though, is to do very uh, sh uh, short, non-destructive things. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, if you wanted to uh, respond to, say, China doing something uh, hostile to us, you could just take the Shanghai, you know, the Hong Kong or Shanghai stock exchange offline for one day. Yeah. No one dies. Mm -hmm. Nothing's destroyed. Uh, China suffers financial harm. But uh, so I, I think what technology is it provides these options that we didn't have before. So you, before, I think we were stuck between nothing and... Potentially you, obliterating. Yes, going full blow into right. blown war. And then technology would have helped, you know, you would have, like the Russians do, you would use technology to help make your conventional attack worse. Mm -hmm. than the other. But it also means that you can be more precise and more limited. And hopefully, I think, head off. The, you know, the, the fancy theory in the book is that uh, you know, when you're stuck between doing nothing and having a full-blown war, nations are more likely just to go to full-blown war. Mm -hmm. There's no way to negotiate, yeah. you know, short of that. And so the more steps you can show, the more information you communicate to each side, hopefully it, you know, gives space for diplomacy. Right. Think about North Korea. So uh, North Korea is a good example. If, you, if we had no technological options with North Korea, then you're stuck with bribing them to stop or launching an attack on North Korea, both of them are very bad options. But suppose you can do things like shut North Korea's access off to the banking system, you know, and imposes a harm on them. It's not war, but it's, you know, you can pressure them in various ways, hopefully to convince them to stop. At least you have more choices now between nothing and war and full war. Right. So with those more choices, it seems like there'd be less of a reason for international cooperation in forms of you know, the UN and other organizations that mm -hmm. relied on economic sanctions as that third opportunity between yeah. doing nothing and yeah. global war. Do you see that as 
a potential trend of less influence for those international yeah, organizations? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. So, you know, one thing with sanctions that we do raise is that um, under international law and the UN approach to things, sanctions are always preferred to any kind of force. Uh, even though we say sanctions, you know, as you were just saying, could be extremely harmful to a whole population. Think about it, you're cutting a whole population off from, you know, all products. Everyone in the country's harmed. You know, the theory of sanctions is everyone in the country's harmed and hopefully they'll get their leaders to change their position. They're very imprecise. Um, so I, you know, one thing we argue in the book is these are better than sanctions in a way because you could, you know, if you take the stock market offline yeah. for a day, that's better than putting a whole country under an embargo, it seems to to me, or you could say we're going to take your internet access off from the outside world. Or, you know, you could do all kinds of very precise things. On the other hand, your point is right, and I think it's also very similar to what you hear about technology and change and public policy in other areas. You, so you'll see arguments: Why is the FCC, which is created in 1934, which was supposed to regulate, you know, phone calls made over physical copper wires, right. regulating the internet? You know, so. When you hear that argument, what it really means is we have a government and regulatory system that was built for the mass-produced industrial age of the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Why would you – and you can sort of see that you know, when you see um, difficulties in regulation actually understanding how technology works and figuring out how to – and you see companies and industries just avoiding government now. Mm-hmm. I think that's the same phenomenon that – the. Uh, the UN system was created in 1945. It was built for, it was really built to stop another World War II. All these changes in technology 75 years later are just, you know, they, the, the regulation and government doesn't fit the reality of the social problem. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're going to see big changes eventually in the way our government regulates technology. And I think you'll see that with international regulation of technology too. I don't think it'll be through the, UN and I think it'll involve companies too will have to be involved in a way they we wouldn't think of them be you know we would never so you think like if we were regulating nuclear weapons we wouldn't have thought oh we've got to regulate Boeing right yeah. or right. right Lockheed Martin but if you think about it, if we're going to regulate uh, you know cyber you know we're going to have to you know involve Google and Facebook and yep. think of, look at the investigation into Russian interference in our elections you know, a lot of it's involving, well, what did Facebook, what's Facebook's policy on ads? What's Google's policy on ads? It's, you know, it's very, it's a, that shows you how uh, regulation of the old 20th century model doesn't really fit the technology. Technology today, the power is not all held by governments anymore. In your opinion, what is the international or domestic legal framework for the rules of warfare, like how do you discuss it? Yeah, I think book? yeah. In the book, we're saying that uh, we don't ha- we don't know what the final version would be. So we actually say, uh, let's go back to an earlier age, uh, before the 20th century, when uh, countries tried to figure out a way to cooperate to settle on the rules after uh, they after what we call practice after. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like the common law in a way. Mm-hmm. Let's see how these weapons are used. Let's see what countries do. And f- and then right, we'll look at all the cases and figure out what's the reasonable rule. Most people, I think, who uh, think about international regulation, uh, they think of it more like the tax code. Let's write it out first in a very precise way yeah, and right. capture all the cases. Roman yeah, law approach. Exactly. It's very European in, mm-hmm. in attitude. And our view, so our view is like more of a common law, like how could you do that if you don't know what the technology really is like? 
what costs and benefits it's going to have, how it's going to be used. So in a way, we don't use this in the argument, but we argue for standards (laughs) and not rules, (laughs) right? And so because that's what you do when you don't have much information yet. Mm -hmm. Let practice give us more information, then then figure out the best rule. So I just point out with nuclear weapons, for example, there you know there's first used in 1945. Uh, the first uh, treaty just limiting their arson the arsenals wasn't until 1972, so it was you know almost 30 years later. And the first treaties reducing them are not until another 30 years after that. So it took a long time for us to even understand nuclear weapons to start making these kinds of uh, decision. So it seems to me, how could we do one with cyber or, or robotics yeah. just 10 years into it? Right. Yeah. It encourages the gamesmanship of, I'm going to skirt this law by changing a small yeah. thing. And you wouldn't even know like whether that, like you could say, oh, well, we'll draw the rule here. Maybe it gives too much space for mm-hmm. cheating, mm-hmm. you know, and th- that would have just turned out to be wrong. But how could you know before you see the weapons, how they're used? Also, I think my other just last point of that is, I think that... Uh, you know, the, you know, Western democracies uh, would suffer more because they're the more innovative, you know, so why would, you know, why should the United States and Europe, Japan uh, agree to something like this early on when it's their advantage uh, and they're using it in a way which generally we think is good to reduce casualties and try to maintain some kind of order in the world and reduce chaos? Why would you self, you know, restrain yourselves right now so early on? What are the, like, large standards that you would advocate for so for example one that's been very common is having a human being able to be in part of the chain of command not having a terminator type of thing that can autonomously make decisions and yeah this is this is the interesting thing so uh just you know about a week or two before this book came out elon musk and some tech ceos came out and said we want to ban you know, artificial intelligence and mm-hmm. high uh, advanced robotics and, and warfare and because they're worried the robots are going to take over. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, th- so I think autonomous weapons really bring all these points to a, uh, you know, to a focal point. I would say uh, autonomous weapons have already been around for a while. Like a mine is an autonomous weapon if you think about it. A cruise missile is an autonomous. When you launch it and then it takes its mm-hmm. own flight. Um, but obviously you're talking about a whole other dimension of autonomous weapons. You know, aircraft, fighter jets will probably be the first ones because uh, they can, you know, you can just maneuver a lot faster and quicker than even a human being can. Mm-hmm. Missile defense will be another area because you want to act quickly to shoot missiles down before a human being can decide. So I would say this is a good example of the difference between standard and a rule. There are a lot of people who say, let's just ban all of them. But I would say, what if they do incredible good? What if the, as a result of autonomous weapons, we can prevent nuclear weapons from being dropped on with ICBMs? I think it would be crazy to, you know, so I would say the reasonable thing to do is let's look at the cost of benefit of each weapon in each context and decide how we want to regulate it rather than banning everything all at once. In terms of some, maybe some unforeseen consequences, we think historically the horrific weapons of the past, like chlorine gas, countries kind of decided on their own not to use them in the future. So, yeah. for example, Germany in World War One might have used them, but in World War Two, Yeah, no chemical weapons. Does the fact of these precision strikes and the inability to really track what um, some of these drones are doing um, and other potential weapons where we don't really see the horrific side of them, does that 
change the analysis at all? Or? Well, I, so one thing about chem, chemical weapons are a good analogy to make because it's an area that has been fairly successful. The countries have stopped using them, except countries use them against their own citizens, as we're seeing in Syria, as we saw in Iraq. I think we've seen it in Iran. But countries have been very careful not to use them against each other. So good question, why? And so the, the argument we make here is it's not because of a treaty. It's because the countries all had their own and they stockpiles and they uh, threaten retaliation if they were used. So the deterrence, mm-hmm. same and not in, in the same way that nuclear weapons deterred uh, each other's use. And so it's an interesting thing. In uh, World War II, a lot of the countries had chemical weapons, but they never used them, even though they had every incentive because they didn't want to suffer a chemical attack too. So with, with these technologies, our thought is, or we argue that the best way to prevent your earlier question about Oh, we're also vulnerable. So who, how do we know cyber attacks aren't going to get out of control or the enemy's going to use robotics on us? I think the only way to stop that right now is a kind of deterrence approach with uh, the threat of retaliation behind it by keeping a certain stockpile yourself, which means that a ban would really be a bad idea because it would just allow other countries to continue you know, building them and using them. Right. And you mentioned just a second ago... Um, countries potentially using weapons on their own citizens. Yeah. Do you think that international law should have a hand in regulating this? Yes. I, so I think that's been one of the terrible things. Uh, uh, and then you've seen it as the breakdown of international order uh, in the last 15 years or so means that there are more uh, authoritarian governments using weapons against their own citizens mm-hmm. that we don't see in the international we don't see an international relations before between countries anymore, mm-hmm. and so yeah, so one thing is, uh, you know, international law is a, has a hard time allowing intervention into, you know, internal affairs of states. But again, I would say again, the the theory of this book is we should do what's reasonable, cost benefits, and so all we as you know as as as, as humanity, we have an interest in getting rid of all biological and chemical weapons. So that means countries. So we shouldn't give in to this uh, impulse by Trump to pull out of the world. In fact, I, have, I argued in the book right before this that although it's expensive and painful, the answer is actually to intervene into places like Syria or Iran or Iraq earlier before countries can start using these weapons on their citizens. Um, and maybe technology will allow us to do that. So may, the pitch we make at the end of the book is that maybe things like cyber and space and robotics will allow countries to pressure these authoritarian regimes that are going to you know use chemical weapons on their citizens allow them to pressure them even try to stop those weapons from being used without having to invade them with a hundred thousand troop army and that's better for everybody even though we may become more vulnerable as you say to uh, attacks like that on ourselves all right well thank you very much for joining us professor Yu. Professor Yu is a co-host of Ricochet's Law Talk podcast. Is there any other forums that you'll be engaging in the future that our listeners could find you? Oh, uh, yeah, so I, I, but Law Talk is the podcast I love doing. Maybe we'll do a joint merged Law Talk podcast yeah. someday <laughs> where we do technology and law, and we'll tape it live here before a studio audience. <laughs> Thanks for joining today's podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Chante Westmoreland and me, Tony Beadle. 
We are committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you found our podcast so we can reach more listeners. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for a show, please contact me, the editor, at beadle at berkeley.edu. That's B-E-D-E-L at berkeley.edu. The views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be up to date. This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only.